Hey, I'm curious, uh, how many of you love the TV channel HGTV? Okay, anybody, you love HGTV? You got to clap for HGTV, come on. Uh, we love HGTV because it's a ton of shows about house renovation. And uh, in 2018, 19, they just boomed. It became one of the most watched and most popular TV channels with over 44 million viewers. Now, I think we love HGTV and all these shows are good. But here in Texas, we know who the real king and queen of house renovations are, of course. Uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, yep. They've taken over Waco and over Target and uh, maybe even your house. Uh, and maybe uh, you're not even thinking, you weren't even thinking about doing a rental project until you saw Fixer Upper. Now all of a sudden, you want to renovate your entire house. And then you're thinking, it looks so easy on TV. Surely this is a good idea. Now I think we love home renovation shows partly because of the before and after. Like we love the before and after pictures and images. That there's something incredibly sensational about when that bus gets pulled away and you see the final product. Or that poster gets torn and you see this incredible extreme makeover in the house. And those are amazing moments. But you know what happens between the before and the after? A whole lot of this, okay? And a lot of this, and even this. <laughs> There's a lot of mess in the middle. There is debris and maybe some arguments between husbands and wives. You got some neighbors who aren't all that happy because all the trucks that have pulled up to your house and it's taking longer and you're spending more than you need to or want to. And you may even need some counseling sessions after this project is over and done with. There's a lot of mess. We love the after picture. But the mess in the middle can be discouraging, and it can even be devastating at times. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Uh, last seven weeks, we've been looking at the bookends of God's story, and we know the beginning is good. I mean, Genesis 1 and 2 is beautiful. End of Revelation is amazing. This new Jerusalem, this new kingdom that we're going to be living out physically, experientially with God here on earth. Those two moments are amazing. Eternity past, eternity future. But today we find ourselves in the middle of God's project in the world. And in the middle there are wars, brokenness, injustice, pandemics, hatred, violence. And unlike HGTV where Things towards the end of the show just gets better and better, better. You kind of see it anticipating. Sometimes in our life, when we look around us, things may seem to be getting worse and worse. Uh, so you wonder, where is God in the middle of all this? What's he up to in the world? God made the world beautiful in Eden. It was perfect, just as it needed to be a home for us. But sin demolished the world God created. One by one, Sin and its consequence and its effects began to unravel the beautiful design of God in the world. In fact, Genesis 3, you begin to read some of the conditions that came from immediately from the fall. And you meet shame where Adam and Eve, their eyes were open just like the serpent said they would be when they ate of the forbidden fruit. But their eyes were open not to know good and evil. Their eyes were open to realize their own shame and to know their nakedness and their shame. There is separation. Before God even finds Adam and Eve, they're already hiding from God. This is the first time God's created beings, his image bearers are hiding from him in shame and fear. There's blame. Adam blames his wife. And he blames God and says, the woman you gave me, by the way, made me eat the fruit. Eve 
blames the serpent. The serpent made me do it. So rather than admitting they're wrong, they're deflecting their blame. There's incredible pain of all sorts that now enters the equation of humanity. The women will now have to bear children through painful labor, through labor pains. And Adam and men will have to, at least in Genesis 3, God says to the men, you will eat of the fruit of the ground through painful labor, toil, hardship, meaning more work and less reward. There was subordination. Until the fall, men and women, equally created by God, lived in this mutual, equal relationship with one another, perfectly one with him and one with each other. But now, part of the curse is that Eve finds herself in a new kind of relationship. And God says, as part of the fallen nature, Adam would rule over Eve. There is fruitless labor. Fruitless labor until the fall, the ground naturally produced fruit and vegetables of all kinds after its kind. But now the ground will need to be cultivated, and the natural product of the ground are thorns and thistles. How many of you have weeds in your yard? And no matter what you do, right? Natural product is thorns and thistles. More work, less reward. Death is now a part of the human story. God tells Adam and Eve, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. You will return to the ground from which you are taken. Death enters. And lastly, there is banishment or exile. Out of an act of kindness, really, God banished. He removed Adam and Eve out of the garden, out into the dust, so they would not forever live in this condition. That's the beginning of the middle Genesis 3, 1 and 2 are beautiful, it's perfect. But Genesis 3 reminds us of all the different conditions that came about because of our sin, because of the curse of humanity. And ever since then, generation after generation, we are all vulnerable to these same conditions. Shame, blame, pain, subordination, separation, death, fruitless labor. It has gripped the humankind. It's part of our story. But the amazing thing about the gospel, the wonder of the gospel, is that though we demolish the house God made, God enters into it and God goes not to repair the house, but to recreate the house. God's not in the business of refurbishing. He's not into patch up jobs. In fact, he's not refurbishing. He is recreating. He is making all things new. And when God gets done making all things new, we won't even see a trace of the conditions of the fall. It's going to be that good. He's going to perfectly redeem, recreate, renew the earth. And the new creation won't have a single trace of the brokenness of humanity. Revelation 21, John gives us a vision of the after picture. If Genesis 3 is the brokenness, the debris, the mess... Revelation 21 is the moving of the bus, and we get a full view into the story God is writing. So notice what John says in Revelation 21, verse 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, see, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. 
They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Why? Because the previous things or the old order of things, the previous order has been passed away. It's been removed. Every trace of it is gone. Aren't you longing for that moment of the new heavens and the new earth? This is the after picture where the world is moving into. But if you notice here in Revelation, this description of the new heavens and the new earth, it is the exact removal of every bit of the curse from Genesis 3. It is a reversal and more. It is the uplifting of the curse that we see in Genesis 3. So if in Genesis 3 in the fall, there is separation between God and humanity, here in Revelation, God is dwelling with people, with us. He's not dwelling with them vicariously or through some agent. No, no, no. He is face to face with all humanity. He is living one with us. He doesn't send an angel. No, no. He, in all of his visible glory, is dwelling physically here on the earth. If the curse brought about shame in the Garden of Eden, here the shame is removed. Why? Because no more nakedness. The bride is adorned clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. If blame was the result of the curse here, blame is lifted. Why? Because this is a holy city where only righteousness and justice will reign forever and ever. The pain that entered the story in Genesis 3 and the pain that has been perpetuated since then in every time period and every generation is finally done away with. And the tears we cry the pain we feel, the grief we experience. Jesus himself leans in with his nail-pierced hands and he wipes those tears away. And death is no more. No death of a child, no adult whose life is taken too soon. Why? Because the old order, the previous things, the old way, the conditions of the fall are completely done away with. This is the after picture that God is leading the universe into. How do we get, if this is the after picture, how do we go from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21? What happens in the middle that promises us this? And how do we live in the middle waiting for that day? We love this, but what do we do today? What did God do in the middle to get us to this moment that's awaiting us? I want to show you what God did. See, right after Adam and Eve commit their sin, God promises the cross. Right at the onset of their sin, God promises the cross. He has a conversation with the serpent. And here, he gives the serpent what he's already planning to do. He didn't devise the plan with the cross at the moment of our sin. He had already thought of it. And he now discloses, he promises the serpent how he is going to right every wrong. Genesis 3.15, sometimes called the first gospel, says it like this. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. We know her offspring, but consider the phrase between your offspring, serpent. That's an interesting phrase. We'll come back to that. Between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Right at the face of our sin, God promises the cross. 
He says, between the offspring of the woman and of the serpent, there will be hostility, enmity, until the cross. And on the cross, Satan, the serpent, will strike the heel of Jesus, the offspring of the woman. Meaning, Jesus will be crucified. He will die on a cross. But the story isn't over because Satan thought it was. But he will come back from the death. He will be triumphant and crush or strike the head of the serpent. How? Through the resurrection. He will defeat sin. He will defeat the grave. He will be victorious over the serpent, over Satan himself. So God, right at the onset of the fall, promises that there is coming one day one who will defeat death and sin and shame. But here's what's amazing. God doesn't just say the promise. He shows the promise in Genesis 3. He he doesn't just make the promise. He, in fact, illustrates the promise to Adam and to Eve. Right after their sin, Adam and Eve realized they were naked, and they sewed together fig leaves to cover their shame. But God had a better idea. He had a lasting plan. Notice what God does right after they realize their nakedness. Genesis 3 goes on in verse 21 to say, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. He clothed them. Recognize the significance of this moment. Adam and Eve have blown it. Like they had one thing not to do and they did it. And it messed everything up. Not just for them, but for every single human being, which is everyone in the universe since then. They sinned. They committed a huge failure that is now leading the world into this downward spiral of sin and its consequence. But here, God comes to them in the midst of their greatest failure. And he cares for them. He clothes them. They're living in the shame of their action, but a God who is so much bigger than their failure, a God who is so much bigger than the mistakes that they've made, he comes and literally clothes them with the garment of a skin of an animal. He shows them that his covering is better than theirs. And here's why this significance, why this moment is so important. What does it teach us about God's covering for us? It tells us that we need covering for our sin. We have sinned, all of us, every one of us. We are unrighteous before God. And we need a covering for our sin. And oftentimes, just like Adam and Eve, we make our own coverings. But our own attempts to cover our sin are inadequate. Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together. And look, fig leaves aren't all that big. It's not a good look, no matter how many put, you put together. There's still shame, even if they're covered by fig leaves. So God says, I've got something better for you. Let me cover you. Fig leaves represent our own efforts to cover our shame and our sin. It could be man-made religion, trying to cover our own shame. It could be what it's called moral therapeutic deism which says, let's just do enough good moral things. Let's get around the latest cause and great humanitarian things. Let's do enough good moral things to where we feel good about ourselves and we think doing enough of those things will appease God, that it makes us more presentable to God. A lot of people trying to dress themselves with good works and good deeds. But every bit of it, no matter how much we do, is inadequate. Because creating a covering on our own isn't enough. 
Only God can provide the covering we need. Only he can. And here God makes the covering, and Adam and Eve had nothing to do with it. God does it all on his own. And what is his covering? His covering is an innocent substitute. His covering is an innocent substitute. This is the first death recorded in Scripture. And it's the death of an innocent animal that's sacrificed on account of Adam and Eve. Just imagine this moment. This is perhaps the first time Adam and Eve are seeing the shed blood of something or someone else. This is their first witnessing of a sacrifice. A sacrifice for them. And God slays an animal and clothes them with the skin of that animal. Blood is shed perhaps for the first time ever here in Genesis 3 on account of somebody else. I imagine for Adam and Eve in this moment as they're watching the killing of an animal so that they could be clothed, they are one, feeling the severity of their sin, the weightiness of their sin, but two, they're experiencing the grace of God, which is providing for their shame and providing for their sin. And that's exactly what God does. He says to the serpent what he's going to do, and he shows Adam and Eve how he's going to do it. And then 4,000 years later from this first sacrifice that was slain for Adam and Eve, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, enters our story, and he fulfills what was promised to the serpent and what was illustrated to Adam and Eve. He on the cross perfectly provides not just a covering for our sin, but the removal of every bit of the curse we brought onto ourselves. Here's how Paul records it in Colossians 2. Verse 13, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. I think that's the offspring of the serpent. Not just Satan himself, but every ruler, every authority, every demonic principle in high places. Paul says Jesus disarmed not just a serpent, but everything that comes from him. Every activity, every principality from him. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. Why? Because he triumphed over them in him. This is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 where he crushes the head of the serpent publicly, triumphing over him and them. On the cross, Jesus fulfills the promise and the illustrations of Genesis 3. On the cross, Jesus lifts the curse that fell on humanity. In fact, Paul was saying in Galatians 3 verse 13 that Christ became a curse under the law to redeem those under the law. He hung on a tree considered curse. So to redeem those under the law, he became a curse for us. I want you to think for a moment, all of the parallels that exist between the condition of humanity since the fall and the condition of Jesus on the cross. Two conditions, the condition of humanity because of our sin and the condition of Jesus on the cross. Adam and Eve felt shame privately, but Jesus was humiliated publicly. Adam and Eve deflected the blame that they were rightfully theirs. But Jesus willingly received 
blame for things he did not do. He allowed it for crimes and for sins he did not commit. He took it all on himself. Adam and Eve felt the pain that came from Genesis 3. And Jesus felt the pain of the crucifixion unlike anything we could ever imagine. Adam and Eve felt separated from God and Jesus there because of their sin and our sin. In that moment of agony, he feels forsaken by the Father. Adam and Eve experienced death, but Jesus died on their behalf. And Paul says because of his death, he makes us alive. Friends, Jesus doesn't just cover our sins. He forgives our sins. But not only that, he removes the curse and he clothes us, not with the skin of an animal, but he clothes us with his own perfect righteousness. Aren't you thankful for the gospel of Jesus that he clothes you? Amen? Like, I know it's about to be fall, and it is here, and it's about to be winter, and you're super excited about getting all your leather coats out. But every time you wear a leather coat, remember, God has done something better than the skin of an animal. (laughs) He has clothed you with the beauty, the righteousness. He's lifted the curse and clothed you with the sacrifice of his own son. That's what God does in the middle. He promises, he illustrates, he carries out the work of the cross. So that the curse is lifted and we can get to Revelation 21 one day. So what's our response then in the middle? What do we do? Well, the first thing we do is we believe. We do what Adam and Eve failed to do, which was trust God. Believe in him. Trust in his word. Trust in his work on this side of the cross. We place our full weight, our full trust in the work of Jesus. We believe that his work worked. That his work is sufficient for us. That it's enough to cover, to save, to rescue. And it is our only hope. We believe. But second of all, not only do we believe, we participate with God in the inbreaking of his kingdom now. See, when Jesus came, one of his most repeated phrases was, the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning, you can reach out and grab a hold of it. It's here. It's coming. I am bringing it in. I'm ushering it in. See, in Revelation 21, we see the fullness of the kingdom of God physically, visibly here with us. But when Jesus entered our story, he brought the kingdom of God already here. We don't see it fully yet. We will one day. But yet we can participate in it fully now. Meaning we can through our life, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, we can bring down a slice of heaven here on earth. And we can pray prayers like, God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. See, people of God, filled by the Holy Spirit, we are participating in the inbreaking of God's kingdom, his righteousness, his generosity, his justice, his love, his compassion on earth as it is in heaven. Let me show you to you. Let me show how we're already participating. One day, we will physically see the new creation. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you know what the Bible calls you? The new creation. You're already the new creation. One day, we will physically see the removal of physical death from the planet. But the New Testament teaches that as soon as you place your faith in Christ, you've already crossed over from death into life. Like eternal life has already begun. One day, we will see the full removal of pain and sorrow. But in Jesus... 
As we experience his kingdom, we receive his joy, his power, his grace. One day we will be seated with Jesus shoulder to shoulder in the new heavens and the new earth. But today, Paul says, you and I are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Not yet shoulder to shoulder, but today heart to heart. We're united, meaning every single day we are spiritually active and awake and alert in the kingdom of God already here as we inch our way to the full, visible, physical reality of that world. It's here and it's coming. So between Eden, Eden and New Jerusalem, we don't just sit silent. We don't stay passive. No, no, no. We actively participate in the arrival and the ushering in of the already but not yet kingdom of God. When a believer in Jesus, indulged by the Holy Spirit of God, sees herself or himself as that, what we begin to see through our life is the unraveling of the very condition of the curse through the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if the curse brought curse to the ground, the church of Jesus filled with the Spirit can cultivate the ground, cultivate the earth, and care for our world and see life again out of ashes comes beauty. If the curse brought shame, that means we can meet people. You can meet somebody this week who is still living in shame and tell them about the offering of full acceptance because of who Jesus is. If the curse brought pain and sickness, those filled with the Holy Spirit can be used by God as he wills to bring healing to the sick and freedom to the captive, good news to the poor. If the curse brought about hostility and wickedness and inequality, we, the church of Jesus, can be about bringing together equality, oneness, harmony to the power of Jesus. Jesus himself said, or Paul said in Galatians, in Christ, no more male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We are one in Christ. That means that the walls of hostility can come down in the kingdom now. That means through the church, through our message, through our influence, even nations can experience the peace that comes only through Jesus Christ. And those on the margins of society are brought to the core of the heart of God. What I'm saying is, yes, Revelation 21, we were fully going to see that one day. But today you have a part to play in God recreating the world in and through our own life. Yes, we're in the middle of Eden and New Jerusalem. We're invited to believe and participate in the inbreaking of his kingdom. The last two weeks, ever since October 7th, when we saw the horrific, horrific act of terror, barbaric, senseless upon Jewish people, we began to see our world rise to a whole new level of wickedness and alertness, grief. That moment has started an all out war in Israel. I don't know about you, but I've been doing a lot of crying and grieving and praying. And in this moment, I think as we live in the middle, we can do two things that are acts of worship. We can lament and we can trust. We need to lament and we need to trust. So I was thinking about, why am I lamenting? Why do we feel sort of universally there's an agreement of lament and grief? And in a sense, there are, there's this universal agreement that things should not be this way. Why is that? People from different countries and even religious backgrounds, there is an inner cry that says things should not be this way. I think those cries, what are they? I think those are echoes of Eden. Echoes of Eden, meaning we know 
the kind of world God made in Eden, and we know the kind of world God is recreating in the New Jerusalem. And when we see a disconnection between the two, when we see a disagreement within the two, there are laments of grief and pain inside of us. Echoes of our soul, echoes of Eden, a cries of disagreement in our soul when we are met with the realities of the world and we know inherently this just shouldn't be this way. See, in Eden, God created life, so when we face death, there's a cry that says this shouldn't be. In Eden, God created peace, so when we see hostility and violence and vengeance, there's a cry in us that says this shouldn't be this way. In Eden, God created peaceful relationships. So when we see nation against nation and acts of terror and pure evil and hostility among people groups and racism on the rise, we lament this shouldn't be this. It's the echo of Eden. What's amazing is when we grieve, I believe those of us, all of us who are made in God's image as we're tuned to the spirit of God, when we grieve, we are actually feeling the grief of God. Who sees the atrocities of the world more than we do 24 hours a day, seven days a week from the beginning of time? He feels it. When we grieve, we are stepping into the grief of God. God's not distant. He's not aloof from the pain that we feel. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a man of sorrows, one who is acquainted with our grief. Jesus will stand in John 11 at the tombstone of Lazarus, who he's about to resurrect and still weep. Not just over Lazarus, but any person who has died. Because he's saying, this is not what my father created. This brokenness, this hostility, it's not what the father had in mind. And it's not what you will see one day. But I grieve in the middle. It's lament and trust. Scriptures are filled with moments of lament. In fact, there are laments over personal distress. The Psalms are filled with laments and tears of anguish personally. There are laments over communal calamities, communal things. A whole community suffers together. The book of Lamentations is a series of laments when Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And they are crying out of anguish and prayer and a pleading for mercy and finding hope in God. Lament. And today Jerusalem again is weeping, crying, lamenting. And not just Jerusalem, but all of Israel and even those in Gaza. Millions lamenting out of fear. It doesn't matter where we are politically on any of this. We can unite our hearts around the lament of humanity. And we ought to. Lament over the anti-Semitism that is creeping up all over the world. It ought not be this way. Yesterday morning in Detroit, a president of a Jewish synagogue in Detroit was stabbed to death right outside of her home. We'll lament that. A few days ago, I think last week, a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy, Wadia al-Fayumi, stabbed 26 times just because he was Muslim. That's not okay. It's cause for lament, praying, tears for all people. We lament over sin and its consequence because any moment, groups of people who have rejected the offering of Jesus When we offer his gift of forgiveness and his covering, it always leads to more hostility, hatred, violence, vengeance. It leads to that. When there is a presence of sin that's celebrated and a lack of repentance, we need to lament. It could be across the world or in our own communities. 
sin has a way of dishonoring God and dehumanizing people. So we join in on this call to lament. Why? Because lament is a plea for God's intervention. It's not just a soppy, sad story. It is a plea to God saying, God, without you, there is no hope. Without Jesus ruling and reigning, without his kingdom here on earth, we'll never experience peace because he alone is the prince of peace. In our lamenting, we recognize our human limitation and we plead for divine intervention. Nothing I could do, nothing no one can do can actually make the world of a difference because we are limited in our resources and influence. But, oh God, would you intervene in the world? In the middle, we need you so desperately. It is a cry asking God for his intervention in the world so we can lament together in the middle. But not only do we lament, we can also trust God in the middle. Our lamenting doesn't lead to despair. It actually leads to a deeper trust. And I would argue you can't get to a confident place of trust without lament. Because it's through lament you recognize our need for him. And I love this moment. I want to end with this verse right after the fall. There's an incredible moment that I was blown away by this, this week that I didn't really recognize before. Do you know who named Eve Eve? It's not God. It's actually Adam. And do you know when Adam named his wife Eve? It's not before the fall, it's after the fall. In fact, he names the woman Eve right after the curse of death is pronounced. Right after they're told, you will return to the dust and you'll return to the ground. Right after this announcement of death is given, Adam chooses to name his wife. And do you know what he named her? Genesis 3.20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. He didn't name her the mother of all the dying because they had just received the word of death. He chose in that moment to prophesy over his wife and said, you're not the mother of all the dying. Though we're going to die, though we're going to be returning to dust, though we're going to return to the ground, and death is sure, I am choosing to name you not the mother of all the dying, but the mother of all the living. Eve, the mother of all the living. Why? It's because just a few verses ago, Adam heard, before he heard the promise of death, he heard the promise of a savior given to the serpent out of you Eve will come an offspring who will defeat Satan two promises are given one of death and one of life and Adam chooses right now to hold on not to the promise of death but to the promise of life and he says Eve though we're going to die God's going to be true to his word and you're going to create life and out of you will come all the living and not just all the living out of you will come the one the one living one who will destroy the very death we brought into Adam chose to respond to his brokenness not in view of the curse hear me not in view of the curse but in view of the promise someone asking you what are you naming what are you choosing to name the scenarios around you, the situation around you. You can choose. Will you name it after the curse? Or will you name it after the promise? Promise. promise. And the promise is Jesus. 
the one who is coming back, the one who will right every wrong, the one who will bring end to all wars, the one who will create justice out of injustice, the one who will wipe away every tear. He is a promise for your family, your marriage, for your kids. He is the only one that can be the hope of the nations. So yes, we hear the nightly news on our ears, but hear his good news on your heart because we live by faith and not by sight. Would you stand with me? I want to end our service both lamenting and trusting. And here's what I want to ask you. Which echo of Eden is most reverberating in your soul? What are you lamenting? What is the echo of Eden that is saying to you, it should not be this way. Recognize it. Recognize it. And lament over it. Lament over the condition in the Middle East and Ukraine and Europe and even our nation and our own communities. Lament. Because this is not what God created and designed. But in the midst of our lament, don't be found in despair. Choose the name our cities, our families, our global world, not in view of the curse, but in view of the promise. So would you just, online and in this, would you just extend your hand out loud? And what I would love for us to do for just 30 seconds, 90 seconds, we're going to sing in response of worship, but I want you to just out loud offer to God laments and trust. You can kneel if you want. You can, if you came with a family or friend, just you can link up and pray together. At home, you can pray out loud, but I would love it if for just a few seconds we could lament out loud the echoes of Eden in our soul. But in doing so, we're agreeing to the promise that God has made. So we're going to sing, but before we do, would you begin to pray out loud? Come on, church, let's pray out loud. Hear the echoes of Eden and let this room, let your living room at home, let it be filled with the echoes of Eden. Oh God, how we long for this, how we long for peace, how we long for righteousness. Come on, church, let's, let's actually vocalize the laments we've been hearing. There's power in that. We are disarming the powers of the evil one as we fill this room and your room with songs and prayers of lament and trust. Would you pray? And then we're going to sing in trust of who God is.